So tonight, we are in Matthew 24, 14. So if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 24, 14. Tonight, we're continuing our study that we're calling Out of Context, which is where we're just looking at some various passages that people frequently take out of context to say something that the Bible doesn't say. And we'll see tonight that even, even in the Christian world, sometimes people do that. And it doesn't mean they're evil, doesn't mean they're bad, it just means that they, they don't fully understand what the Bible's saying in those areas. And so uh, we're just gonna get an understanding of that so we can understand what God says in the Bible so that we can get our lives lined up with, with what the Bible says. And tonight we're looking at one of my favorite ones. And I think it's one of my favorite ones because it's kind of about the idea of missions. At least it becomes about missions when Christians take it out of context. So let's re- read what Jesus says in Matthew twenty four fourteen. It says, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then the end shall come. So it sounds like God is going to make sure his gospel is going to be preached in every single nation before Jesus Christ returns. That's what people frequently preach that this verse is saying. It's actually a pretty common thing that this verse gets used to say in, in, uh, in missions context to state that you know, the timing of Christ's return is based on our obedience to the Great Commission. So if we want Christ to come back, we need to make sure we share the gospel in every nation, in every people group, uh, so, that, so that he'll come back because it's, the end's not gonna come until the gospel is back. And so if that's true, then we have to get out there and get the gospel to the nations and people groups that haven't heard it yet. And that sounds really good. It makes for great preaching and it makes for great motivation for Christians to find unreached people groups to get the gospel to. So what's the problem? Well, it's not true. Uh, It's just not true. We're not interested in preaching things that get results. We're only interested in preaching the truth. So when we want to understand uh, what this verse is saying, we want to understand it in context. So what exactly is this gospel of the kingdom? What exactly is the end that's coming? Who's being talked to here? Those are the questions we need to answer if we want to know what Jesus is talking about. So rather than just read this verse, uh, read what this verse seems to say by itself, let's get the context to make sure we can know what God is saying to us. So look at point number one, the context. And again, like last week, to get the context, all we have to do is read the verses leading up to the verse we're looking at. It's real hard stuff. Matthew 24, I'll start reading in verse 3. And read down to verse 13. Verse 3 says, And he sat upon the Mount of Olives. The disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginnings, or the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver up to you, up you to be, uh, sorry, then they shall deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise, and, de- and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. 
Verse 13, but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. So Jesus here is detailing the things and events that are going to lead up to the end of the world, lead up to his second coming. And he's talking to his disciples, who are all Jewish, by the way, and the gospel is being, being preached isn't the only thing that he says needs to happen before the end comes. In these verses, he lists out many things that need to happen because he's answering the questions his disciples asked him. They asked him, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Well, Jesus says there will be people who claim to be Christ. There will be wars and rumors of wars. Nation will rise against nation. Kingdom will rise against kingdom. Famines, pestilences, earthquakes. They, talking to the Jewish disciples, will be delivered up to be afflicted and killed. They'll be hated of all nations because of their affliction with Jesus. Many people will be offended and betray each other. Many will hate other people. False prophets will be everywhere. Iniquity will abound. Love will disappear. Those are all things that will point to the second coming of Jesus Christ and to the end of the world as we know it. So the missions guys who are preaching that the gospel has to be preached in all nations before Christ's return, they're sort of on the right track. They just don't understand a couple of these things in context. But we'll look at the two things they're not getting completely right uh, so, that when, so that we can really understand this verse. And the first specific part of the verse we need to look at is point number two, the gospel. And remember, Matthew 24, 14 says, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And the temptation is to treat this like God is promising that every nation, every people group, will be reached with the gospel before he comes back. Because that would be a pretty cool promise to rely on, and it would motivate us to get off our butts and figure out the specific people groups who still need the gospel. But what is the gospel of the kingdom? What is this gospel of the kingdom that it's talking about? Is that the same thing as the gospel that you and I accepted when we got saved? Is that the same things as what we're told to be sharing with the lost people in our lives today? If you've been paying close attention to some of those verses we read, uh, you'll already know the answer to that. But if you haven't been paying attention, don't worry, we'll break it down. What does the word, uh, what does the word gospel actually mean? Anybody know offhand? Good news. The gospel as a word just means good news. That's all it means. So don't make the mistake of thinking every use of the word gospel is referring to the same thing. Scripture actually means, or actually mentions uh, several different gospels. We're not going to go through the every use of the word gospel in the Bible tonight. We don't have time for that. It's used a lot. Um, But I encourage you to do that. It's easy to get on a computer or on your phone and search the Bible for the word gospel and check out those verses. But there are some specific gospels that we need to understand. The first one is letter A, the gospel of the grace of God. And this is the gospel that that we normally think of. It's the one that, that saves us from our sins if we accept it. Paul specifically refers to it as the gospel of the grace of God. Acts 20, uh, verses 24 and 25 says, But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy, and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus, to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that ye all, among whom I have gone preaching, the kingdom of God shall see my face no more. So he calls it the gospel of the grace of God. Of God. So Paul spent his life after he got saved preaching the kingdom of God, testifying the gospel of the grace of God. 
In Romans 2.16, he says, in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So he calls it his gospel. Not because he's the one who's offering it. Jesus offers it. But Paul's taken it for his own. He's owned it and he's devoted his life to sharing it with anyone and everyone who needs it. And he specifically defines this gospel, this good news, in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, first four verses say, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel of the grace of God. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And that is good news. Because of what Christ did, he offers a way for us to be rid of our sins and live an eternal life for him. Praise the Lord. We'd have no way of doing that on our own. We'd be stuck in sin, unable to have a relationship with Christ. But because he died and offered to pay for those sins, all we have to do is accept that gift. And man, that's the best news ever. That is the, the gospel of the grace of God. And in my opinion, that's the best gospel of them all because that's my gospel. I've received it. It saved me. It's the best news I could ever personally hope for. And if you accept it too, man, it'd be the same, it'd be the same for you. It would be your gospel. It would be the best gospel uh, in the world. But just because it's the best gospel, that doesn't mean it's the only gospel. Paul writes in Galatians, 7, or Galatians 1, verse 7, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. So there's guys who are going to preach other gospels. Verse 9, as we said before, now say I again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul preached the gospel that was revealed to him by Jesus Christ. His gospel was true. It's the same gospel you and I have in that Bible that we can open up and Jesus can reveal it to us through his word. And he was warning the Galatians about others who would preach other gospels to them. Because there's a lot of people out there preaching false gospels. But keep in mind that not all the other gospels are false. Some are just different. And specifically, some are not for us living today. And that's what we see going on here with letter B, the gospel of the kingdom. And we really don't have to look too far to realize that this is a different gospel than the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. All we have to do to define what this gospel of the kingdom is, is read the verse before it, in verse four, or the verse right before verse 14, which is verse 13. Matthew 24, 13 says, But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. See how this context stuff really, really isn't that difficult normally? I mean, Matthew 24, 14 even says this gospel of the kingdom, which indicates it's something that's currently being talked about. And if you pop back to verse 13 and see Jesus say that he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. 
So this gospel is good news. It's just different news. Here Jesus is saying that you have to endure unto the end to be saved. And in context from the preceding verses, we know he's talking about the Jews enduring or surviving the persecution and suffering they'll go through during the tribulation. And if you look up that phrase, gospel of the kingdom, you'll see it elsewhere in scripture. For example, in Matthew 4, uh, a couple verses in there talk about the gospel of the kingdom. You'll find that it's connected to something called the kingdom of heaven. And we don't have time to get into this study tonight, but the kingdom of heaven is not the same thing as the kingdom of God. They sound similar, but if you've, ever, if you've never done that study, do yourself a favor and look up those two phrases in scripture because you can clear up a lot of misunderstanding people have with the Bible if you can just divide those two things. Like 2 Timothy 2.15 says, D- rightly divide the word of truth. But the kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God, they might sound similar, but they're not the same. Heaven and God are, are two different words. And like Brett Bartlett always says, you can tell they're different words because they're spelled differently. <laughs> but if, you, if I can give you just a brief rundown of it right now, the kingdom of heaven is God's physical kingdom. And that's not on the earth at this moment. The kingdom of God is God's spiritual kingdom. And that is on the earth today, but it's spiritual. So you can't see it with your eyes. The Bible says that the kingdom of God is within you in Luke 17. And that's important because the church is only to be concerned about building the kingdom of God. God is the one who's going to establish the physical kingdom of heaven on this earth when he returns. And he's going to use Israel to do it. So it makes sense that this gospel of the kingdom, which is clearly tied to the kingdom of heaven, would be a gospel that's for Israel in the future. So to properly understand this gospel and why it's, it's going to be preached, we have to get an understanding of what's going to happen at the end of the tribulation, which is when Christ sets up his physical kingdom on this earth. Because this gospel of the kingdom, clearly defined by Matthew twenty four thirteen, says that if you endure to the end, you'll be saved. Which, by the way, would be a very strange gospel for us t- today. Well, how do you get saved? Well, you just survive till Jesus gets back. Okay, that's not physically possible for for most people. A lot of people have existed in human history and they died before Jesus came back for his second coming. It would go against the idea of us building a spiritual life and a spiritual kingdom if we tied it to our physical life ending. You know know what I mean? But at the end of the tribulation, there's going to be people who physically survive and and come out of it. And this is who this gospel applies to. Read with me in uh, Revelation 7 uh, verses 9 through 14 it says after this I beheld and lo a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and peoples and tongues stood before the throne and before the lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hands and cried with a loud voice saying salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and unto the lamb and all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God saying amen Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence comest they? Don't make the mistake of thinking that this is about the church. Verse 14 says, And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which come out of, the, out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So these people come out of the tribulation and have washed their robes. That's not us. 
You and I don't wash our robes. Jesus does that for us. You and I don't go through the tribulation either. Revelation 19 makes it clear that the church's robes are the righteousness of the saints. But you and I can't do anything to be righteous. We rely on Jesus' sacrifice for our sins to clean us up. But here in Revelation 7, these guys wash their own robes, meaning that they did some stuff to earn their righteousness. So Revelation 7 isn't describing you or me, but these are the people who the gospel of the kingdom is actually for. These are the people who survive until the end of the tribulation and don't take the mark of the beast or turn on Israel. They endure to the end. These people get saved from God's judgment of the nations. And that's a different kind of salvation than you or I have because of accepting our gospel. But it's a salvation nonetheless. So the gospel of the kingdom described in Matthew 24 is some really great news. It's just not written to us. And it's not as good news as our gospel is. And during the tribulation, it'll be preached to every nation before the tribulation is over. God talks about various witnesses that are going to be preaching to the world during the tribulation, and this is what they're going to be preaching. But maybe after examining the gospel, you still have some questions about what the end is exactly. And I don't have time to lay out everything that's going to go on between now and the second coming of Christ. I don't know that I could if I tried. But I do want to take some time and examine the end to make sure that we fully grasp what's being described in Matthew 24. So let's look at part three, the end. And the argument here from the guys who who preach that we have to share the gospel to every nation before Jesus can come back, they, they don't only misunderstand the gospel that's being talked about, they also misunderstand what Jesus means by the end. Maybe they think it's the rapture, some of them do. Maybe they don't believe there's a rapture that, or that we, maybe they think we grow through the tribulation. Well, if you don't believe that there's a rapture that's specifically for the church, then, then you just don't believe 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4 and other places in Scripture that clearly describe God coming back to retrieve uh, his church and, and take them up into the clouds with him. And it's not my intention to prove that to you tonight, but you can read those chapters, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, Uh, which are clear that that Jesus is going to come get us at some point, and then the tribulation will start. But in order to to really understand what Jesus is talking about when he says the end coming, surprise, surprise, all we have to do is keep reading after verse 14. Context. Matthew 24, verse 15 through 21 says, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house, neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes, and woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in winter, neither on the Sabbath day, for then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor nor ever shall be. So Jesus is describing the events that are detailed in Daniel 8 and Daniel 11, the abomination of desolation. That's something specific Jesus is referring to from the Old Testament. And it's when the Antichrist sits down on the throne in the newly built temple of Jerusalem, he claims to be God and he turns on the Jews. And the Israelites, if they're listening and paying attention, they know what to do when that happens. They have to flee. And, and Jesus makes it clear they gotta flee quick. Like, if you're on the roof of your house, don't go into your house, pick up your clothes and leave. Just jump off the roof and run. Um, 
Pray that your flight isn't in winter. I don't, that's an interesting thing in the Bible, um, but I'll get off track if I start talking about that. But Israel's gonna know what to do when that happens. If they're paying attention, they gotta, they gotta flee. This is the tribulation, the great tribulation of the nation of Israel. The entire world, for the most part, will be after them at the direction of the Antichrist. And Israel's told to flee and to survive. And if they survive, they'll be saved. That's the gospel of the kingdom. Endure to the end, the same shall be saved. But that doesn't mean that they're totally left to fend for themselves. God will be there to protect them and help them through it. So if they just trust the Lord and follow his instructions, they'll make it. Matthew 24, 22 goes on to say, and except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Israel is God's elect nation. So for Israel's sake, God is going to shorten the days so that they can be saved from the Antichrist and his armies. That could be a reference to the sun being darkened earlier than usual. We see that in verse 29. Or it could be a reference to God pulling them off the earth before it's too late. We see that in verse 31. God raptures the surviving Israelites at the end of the tribulation, similar to what he does with the church before the tribulation. But the point is, it's clear that God is going going to be helping them. In Revelation 12, there's a picture of a woman foreshadowing things that will happen to Israel during the tribulation. Revelation 12, 14 says, And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness into her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. So this woman, picturing Israel, flying into the wilderness, is going to be nourished. Just like God provided manna to Israel when they were in the wilderness after coming out of Egypt, Once the Israelites are fleeing from the serpent, from the devil, from the Antichrist, he's going to be feeding them miraculously again. So God's going to take care of the Israelites who are following his instructions in the tribulation. So when he tells them, endure to the end, and the same shall be saved, that doesn't mean it's every man for himself. That doesn't mean God's not looking out for him. But God's making a way for them to follow what he's saying. Remember we talked about different times in history. God tells people to do different things, and they just have to obey God. And at this point, point in history which is yet future all they have to do is obey what God's saying and flee from the Antichrist God's going to take care of the Israelites who follow those instructions and even though they never got saved by grace through faith like you and I did even though they're lost God is going to help them get through this tribulation and that is good news for them Romans 11 1 says I say then hath God cast away his people God forbid for I also am an Israelite the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin Paul makes it clear that God is not done with Israel yet. So the purpose of the tribulation isn't to kill them. It's just to chasten them, to get them to understand where they went wrong as a nation and get them back on God's side so Jesus can be their king the way he was always meant to be. And God will use it to weed out the ones who won't accept his rule or won't follow his instructions. But if you read on in Romans 11, uh, verses 25 through 27 say, "'For I would not, brethren, "'that ye should be ignorant of this mystery,' Lest ye should be wise in your own conceits that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Sion the deliverer and he shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sin. So at the end of the tribulation, at the second coming of Christ, when the deliverer comes out of Sion, talking about Jesus, now There's actually a whole lot to unpack in this verse, and we're not going to do that right now. But the thing we need to see is that when Jesus returns, 
all Israel shall be saved. That doesn't mean all Israelites who have ever lived. It just means the Israelites who are alive when that happens, when Christ returns. That's the consistent understanding that fits with Matthew 24, 13, endure to the end and be saved. Because that's when he saves them. He saves them at the end. That's when he shall take away their sins as a nation. Right now, if they don't believe the gospel, they're not saved. But they're still God's elect nation, so God still loves them. He's not done with them. Individual Israelites still need the gospel today, just like any lost person does. If they die without accepting Jesus' gift of salvation, they wind up separated from God in hell, just like anybody else. But as a nation, God has some things that he needs to do with them to get them back on his side because he still has plans for them in the future. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, just talk about some of those plans. Uh, says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Talking about Jesus. Verse seven, of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth for even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will, preserve, or will perform this. So when Jesus returns, he's gonna set up that physical kingdom and he'll be the king, but he'll be sitting on the throne of David. And the throne of David is the throne that the king of Israel sits on. And we don't have time to get into Ezekiel 37, but that passage on your sheet, that describes the circumstances when, when Jesus, referred to as David, a picture of Jesus as king, actually takes over the government. Israel's set up as the head of the nations, God's chosen nation. They're sanctified and set apart from all the other nations. That's Israel's destiny. It's very different from our destiny. Our destiny is to get glorified bodies, be rid of our flesh, and rule and reign with Christ after he marries the church. Our destiny is way better, by the way. But that doesn't make Israel's destiny any less real. Because when God promises something, you can rest assured that he will fulfill that promise. And as we wrap up tonight, it's not hard to imagine the weird stuff that could result from you pulling this passage out of context. You know, there's a handful of people in here, including myself, who may feel like God is pulling them towards being missionaries someday, towards moving you and your family off to a different location and, and doing God's work there, S- seeing people come to Christ, making disciples, planting churches. That's the Great Commission. But before those people can actually go somewhere, they have to s- seek God's guidance and direction on where he wants them to go. Where can they go and be effective? Where can they go and accomplish the Great Commission by winning people to Christ and making disciples? Because you can do that anywhere. But the reason why we need to seek God's direction is so we can maximize our impact. Choosing a location to do missions work in is a strategic decision. So we obviously go to the guy with the most information and try to get his understanding of, of where we should go because God knows better than we do. But if you read Matthew twenty four fourteen out of context and think that God's only going to direct you to a people group that hasn't been reached, well, now you're automatically limiting where God can send you. Now, he may send you to a people group that has never come into contact with the gospel in any way, shape, or form. Those people need Jesus. But there's people all over this planet who need the gospel of the grace of God. So some are part of these unreached people groups, and mankind has developed all sorts of measures you can use to determine whether or not a people group is unreached. But some, many people who need the gospel, belong to groups that have one point already heard the gospel. 
But just because a people group has heard the gospel doesn't mean that there's no lost people in that people group. So my point is, there's a, there's a great commission work that needs done everywhere. So don't limit God's ability to direct, to direct you to certain places by pulling a small verse like this out of context and believing something that isn't true. And taking Matthew 24, 14 out of context also creates a problem for like your philosophy on missions as well. It can result in you having different goals in missions than what God would want you to have. As a missionary, your God-given job to win people to Christ, like I said, it's, it's to win people to Christ, make disciples and plant churches. Those are the three things Jesus tells his disciples to do in, in all the gospel accounts. Then, you know, you help those churches and disciples grow so that they can one day uh, send other people out to do the same thing. Paul urged Timothy to commit what you've learned to, to faithful men who can go teach others also. So they're trying to reproduce what God has done in them. And then in that way, we develop more ministers who can cover more of the globe. But if you're under the impression that you can make Christ come back sooner, if you're able to reach every people group, then you may see fit to win one person to Christ from a particular people group. Check that one off the box. That one's done. Now hop on a plane and jump to the next one. Never taking the time to help that one person grow or never planting an actual church, never, never completely reproducing the church that sent you. That's a problem because doing that isn't a full understanding of what the Great Commission is. We don't send missionaries out like that and we don't you know, typically partner with, with missionaries who, who have that philosophy because we want the Bible to tell us what our philosophy on missions should be. And so that's why we, don't wanna, why we need to make sure we don't pull small verses out of context like this because they can give you some weird ideas. Because look, Jesus can come back whenever he wants. He hasn't limited himself based on our actions, at least not in this way. And with that understanding, man, we ought to get off our butts and win people to Christ and make disciples every day that we possibly can. That's our job until he returns for us. We don't have a series of checkboxes where we just have to wait until they're all checked and then we know Jesus is coming once that last one's checked. We don't know when he's coming back. It could be right now. Who knows how many of those checkboxes will be left. He's not gonna wait around until we finish the job. So we need to use what little time we have to get as much done as we possibly can. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much just for the clarity of your word and just for, man, it's, it, it makes so much sense if, if we just step back and, and try to understand it and read it in context, Lord. The Bible is a different book when, when you approach it wanting to know what it says and not, not trying to, to force any opinion or any mindset or, or any reading on a particular passage. God, we just want to know what you say. And Lord, we know your heart is for the people of this world who who don't know you and who need your gospel and that's why you ask us and send us to, to go share your word. And God, I pray that we take that responsibility seriously and not get caught up in small passages like this that can make us spend more time figuring out you know, which people we need to, to reach than, than actually reaching people. God, we need, to, we need to focus and get off our butts and just share the gospel with, with any lost person we come into contact with. And if Lord, you see fit to pull us to a different location, man. Thank you. Thank you. We're, we're honored to be a part of that and, uh, as a church and as individuals. And God, we just pray that you would continue to guide and direct us um, in, in our daily personal lives and, and in our own uh, you know, five-year and 10-year plans. Lord, let us leave room for you to, to work in us and to direct us to, to specific locations and where you might want us to, to share your word with, with the people who need it. Lord, we love you. In your name we pray, amen.